You're listening to WUMC 90.5, Elizabethan and Johnson City, Tennessee. This is the Milligan Radio Station. Tonight, we're taking a look at the disappearance of Amelia Earhart. This is Cryptid Horizons. Welcome to the second episode of Cryptid Horizons. I'm very glad that you all have tuned in for my second episode. And I have some interesting news, some good news. I would like to introduce my new co-host. He will be joining us for today, maybe for a a few more episodes, depending on how this goes. Ladies and gentlemen, Foster Block. Hello, Foster. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. So Foster is a sophomore here at Milligan. Uh, He is a film major. Uh, He's also on the cycling team with me and a little bit of of a history nerd, I would say. Anything you'd like to like to say or tell tell everybody? getting a, a haircut tomorrow so getting a haircut yeah yeah gotta I, look fresh I tell right? the ladies to be on the lookout tell the ladies to be on. yeah sure sure is that it that's okay if that's all you you want to say right now that's about all that's going on in my life noted so foster is going to be joining us for tonight's episode discussing amelia Earhart and the disappearance that she went through (laughs) i guess something like that. she disappeared so we'll figure it out along the way um so basically i'm just going to be reading out and reading out the story and then foster and i are going to discuss you know certain points throughout anyway let's begin amelia mary Earhart was born on july 24th 1897 in atchison kansas to samuel edwin stanton Earhart and amelia amy Otis Earhart. She was the second child of the family, with a younger sister named Grace Muriel Earhart. Amelia's childhood was spent in various locations due to her father's job as a lawyer, which often required the family to move to different cities in pursuit of better opportunities. Despite the family's frequent relocations, Amelia had a close relationship with her grandparents, particularly her maternal grandfather, Alfred Otis, who played a significant role in shaping her adventurous spirit. He took her on outdoor expeditions, teaching her to appreciate nature, and fostering her love for exploration and discovery. Earhart attended several schools throughout her childhood, including Hyde Park School in Chicago and Central High School in Kansas City. However, she struggled academically and never completed high school, as her family's financial difficulties forced her to prioritize work over education. In 1917, Earhart's parents separated, and her father's struggles with alcoholism further strained the family's resources. Despite these challenges, Amelia remained resilient and determined to pursue her dreams. 
So a little bit of a rough start, mm-hmm. I would say, for Miss Amelia. Yeah. Definitely not the uh, the American dream of a childhood. Mm, definitely not. She's in Kansas City, though. I'm, they I, they great, just won a Super Bowl. Great football, great barbecue. So, so I mean, there's that. I don't think the Chiefs were playing in, in the early 1900s, though. Mm, mm, very true. So that might have you know, a little bit of an effect. I don't know if Kansas City was as bustling then as it is now. Perhaps not. There was no Patrick Mahomes in 1917. Mm-hmm. Patrick, I mean, you know, Amelia Earhart, she sort of laid the foundation for Patrick Mahomes to, you know. Her flying through the air, mm-hmm. Patrick Mahomes throwing a ball through the air. Yeah. I, I can see that. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Earhart's fascination with aviation began in 1918 when she volunteered as a nurse's aide during World War I in Toronto, Canada. While stationed at a military airfield, she had her first encounter with airplanes and experienced the thrill of flight. The experience ignited her passion for aviation, and she became determined to learn how to fly. After returning to the United States, Earhart enrolled in medical studies at Columbia University's School of Nursing in New York City. However, her interest in aviation continued to grow and she spent her free time attending air shows and reading about flying. In 1920, Earhart attended an air show in Toronto, where she had her first airplane ride with pilot Frank Hawks. The exhilarating experience solidified her desire to become a pilot despite the societal norms that discouraged women from pursuing careers in aviation. The next year, in 1921, Earhart began taking flying lessons from Anita Netta Shook Snook, one of the few female aviators of the time. She worked multiple jobs, including as a telephone operator and a truck driver, to finance her flying lessons. In 1922, she purchased her first aircraft, a bright yellow Kenner Airster biplane, which she named the Canary. Earhart's determination and talent quickly earned her recognition in the aviation community. In 1928, she received an invitation from publisher and publicist George P. Putnam to become the first woman to fly across the Atlantic Ocean as a passenger. The flight, piloted by Wilmer Stoltz and Lewis Gordon, departed from Newfoundland, Canada, and landed in Wales, marking a significant milestone in aviation history. So, she was, she loved planes. It's pretty inspiring. You know, like, clearly Amelia, she had that that want to fly. The desire for plane. Mm Mm-hmm. More air. Yeah. She had that air in her heart. She had a fever. And the only prescription was planes. Yes. More cowbell. So, never mind. I don't get the reference. Uh, it's a... Never mind. It's, I'm... Never mind. I'll explain later. Okay. I'm never minding. So now we move on to the next part of our story, uh, the solo transatlantic flight. Amelia Earhart's solo transatlantic flight was meticulously planned and prepared to ensure her safety and success. In the weeks leading up to the flight, Earhart and her team meticulously inspected her Lockheed Vega 5B aircraft, ensuring that it was in optimal condition for the journey. Modifications were made to the plane, including the installation of additional fuel tanks to extend its range and accommodate the long-distance flight. 
Weather conditions were carefully monitored, and Earhart waited for a favorable window of opportunity before embarking on her journey. On May 20th, 1932, all preparations were complete, and Earhart was ready to make history as the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean. Earhart's solo transatlantic flight began on the morning of May 20th, 1932, at Harbor Grace, Newfoundland, Canada. A crowd of spectators gathered at the airway to witness the historic event, cheering Earhart uh, as she taxied her Lockheed Vega onto the runway. As the engines roared to life, Earhart waved to the crowd and prepared to take off. With nerves of steel and determination in her heart, she throttled forward and the aircraft accelerated down the runway. The moment of liftoff was exhilarating as Earhart's plane soared into the sky, leaving behind the rugged coastline of Newfoundland and embarking on its journey across the vast expanse of the Atlantic Ocean. Once airborne, Earhart settled into the cockpit of her Lockheed Vega, adjusting her course and altitude to navigate the challenging weather conditions ahead. Flying solo over the Atlantic Ocean presented numerous challenges, including unpredictable weather patterns, strong winds, and the risk of mechanical failure. Throughout the flight, Earhart remained focused and vigilant, constantly monitoring her instruments and making adjustments to ensure her safety. Despite facing turbulence and crosswinds, she maintained a steady course, guided by her navigational charts and radio communications with ground control. Hours passed, and the monotony of the open ocean stretched endlessly before Earhart. Alone in the cockpit, she relied on her training and experience to navigate through the darkness, occasionally catching glimpses of the moon and stars overhead. As dawn broke on the horizon, Earhart was greeted by the sight of sunlight reflecting off the surface of the ocean below. The tranquil beauty of the sunrise provided a brief moment of respite amidst the intensity of the journey, inspiring Earhart to press on with renewed determination. As Earhart approached the coast of Ireland, excitement and anticipation filled the cockpit. After hours of flying solo, she was finally within reach of her destination. Navigating through thick fog and low clouds, Earhart relied on her instruments and navigational skills to guide her safely towards her final approach. With the coastline of Ireland looming ahead, she carefully descended towards the runway, preparing to make her historic landing. As the wheels of her Lockheed Vega touched down on the grassy field near Londonderry, Northern Ireland, a wave of euphoria swept over Earhart. She had successfully completed her solo transatlantic flight, becoming the first woman to achieve such a feat. Earhart's arrival in Northern Ireland was met with jubilant celebrations and widespread acclaim. Crowds of spectators gathered to greet her, cheering and applauding as she taxied her aircraft to a stop on the runway. Amidst the excitement and fanfare, Earhart emerged from the cockpit, greeted by reporters and well-wishers eager to hear her first-hand account of the historic flight. With humility and grace, she thanked her supporters and expressed her gratitude for the opportunity to make aviation history. So, I mean, that's a pretty inspiring story, I would say. Yeah. I mean, me personally, I sort of have a like a personal respect and connection to this because I don't know if you know this, but when I was four years old, um, I flew to Seattle and the pilot actually let me fly the, pu- fly the bird for a little while, which was a a rare treat in the post 9-11 world mm-hmm. and and let me tell you it is not easy to keep one of those puppies up 
and that's like a new a new plane that's got mm-hmm. way more features than her Lockheed yeah. Vega would have had in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Like I'm I'm pretty sure the plane that you were on probably had an autopilot button. No, I I was I was flying that thing. You yeah, you think yeah. so? You think 4-year-old you was 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 carrying a multi-ton well, airplane with the, people think, on it. I think the pilot could sort of just, just he could sense I knew what I was doing. Did you? Well, you, you know, you kind of figure it out. Once do you, you remember this like firsthand, or do you remember being told that you did this? This is, uh, this is something that I, I'm pretty sure actually happened. Can I get a percentage? Like how certain? Okay, so fifty percent, I definitely remember this. Forty percent, I dreamed it. Ten percent, my parents just told me I did that. So the odds, if I'm, if we're, if we're betting, I did that. Because it's what sixty to forty. Because fifty fifty percent, you you remember ten percent they told you you did. So that would be. That's yeah. not great odds, to be honest. I don't think... Six times out of ten... No one goes six times out of ten and then something positive. Six out of times out of ten, I do. In the days and weeks that followed, Earhart's solo transatlantic flight captured the world's attention, earning her widespread recognition and acclaim. She became an international symbol of courage, determination, and the pioneering spirit of aviation, inspiring generations of pilots and adventurers to reach for the skies and beyond. Earhart's flight catapulted her to international fame and established her as a pioneering aviator. She used her celebrity status to advocate for women's rights and promote the advancement of aviation. She became a prominent spokesperson for women in aviation, encouraging other women to pursue careers in the field and challenging gender stereotypes. Throughout the 1930s, Earhart continued to push the boundaries of aviation, setting numerous numerous speed and altitude records. She became the first woman to fly solo nonstop across the United States, as well as the first person to fly solo from Hawaii to California. So right now, everything's like going her way mm-hmm. it's, it's definitely everything's coming up air hard like if i was her i would have an unwavering sense of optimism doing literally anything yeah mm-hmm. like i would not fear for anything at I, that point i'd probably fly to the moon next just straight to outer space yeah i think that's the most reasonable jump someone's got to do it for, i mean I guess. Did yep. we go to the moon? Do you think we went to the moon? Um, yeah, it's six times out of ten, I say yes. You know, I it's kind of funny because over winter break, I don't know how I got on this discussion, but I, I found out that my both of my parents think that we didn't go to the moon. Hmm. That, that's interesting. That's an interesting opinion. I'm not going to lie. I didn't know that that was like such a big mm. thought, like theory, that we just didn't go until I was probably like 14 years old. Mm. 
Like, I feel for a long time of the beginning of my life, it was just accepted that we did it. Yeah. But now that now there's debates about it. Me? I still I still kind of accept it. You think? I mean, yeah. I I kind of think we went. Yeah. I feel like it would be really hard to fake. Mm-hmm going to the moon in the 1960s we didn't have the film technology yet see that's that's what i've heard i've heard that it's about the lights that mm-hmm. uh-huh i've 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 watched videos about the lights and how mm-hmm. you know they suspect kubrick would be the one who did it i also heard and, that and for barry Lyndon, one of kubrick's movies he developed a new lens which could better film candlelight mm-hmm. so maybe he created the lights. Like he created the lights, supposing yeah. that we didn't go to the moon. I mean, he was clearly maybe a technological created, innovator. Well, I mean, he's one of the greatest directors of all time. Oh, definitely. Where, uh, this is completely off topic, but mm-hmm. like, where would you rank him? Because in mm-hmm. Chapel today, mm-hmm. the speaker said that um, Spielberg was the greatest director of all time. Nah, so and I know you're a film major, so like really quickly we have a little bit of time. I'd like to. Mm-hmm. Oh, can, be... can you just like not in necessarily a particular uh-huh. order, but I mean, if you want, like maybe the top three or five directors. Okay. Um. Yes. Um. Hmm. Number one. And then I'll I'll give you mine yeah. afterwards. Okay. Okay. Mm, okay. Number one, uh, I'm going to have to go with... Mm, no pressure. I, I don't want to say Foster Block. Have, but have you directed a, a feature motion picture? Well, not yet. Okay. Okay, number one, my, my personal favorite, Paul Thomas Anderson. Can you give me something that he has directed because that name doesn't ring a bell have you ever seen the movie boogie nights i have not have you ever seen the movie uh licorice pizza no magnolia i nope Heart eight no punch drunk love nope um uh there will be blood no oh okay moving on um number two i'm gonna give it to kubrick okay all right yeah uh number three um Hitchcock. Fair enough. So, um, anyway, I would I would agree that Hitchcock is up there. He's he's probably my number one, mm. just based off of like the timing, because he didn't have all of these cool technologies to work with. It's true, you know. So I think what he did as a director was pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. I would say. Michael Bay is probably up there. Oh, definitely. He's definitely... Michael Bay is most definitely up there. He's... Yep. I think Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 is... Look, I'm a big fan of explosions, mm-hmm. and Michael Bay doesn't disappoint. That's true. Yeah. And for my third one, I'm going to go... I'm going to go with the guy that directed Dr. Sleep, because I'm currently blanking on his name, but I want to say it's Mike Flanagan. I got no clue who directed Doctor Sleep. Okay. Anyway, we're 
Amelia Earhart. We're going to go back to Amelia Earhart now. So we finally reached the point where things are not coming up Earhart Uh as we dive into her disappearance. See what you did there. After her successful solo transatlantic flight in 1932, Amelia Earhart set her sights on her next ambitious endeavor, an around-the-world flight. With the support of her husband, George P. Putnam, and a team of experienced aviators and navigators, Earhart meticulously planned every aspect of the journey, from route mapping to fuel stops. On June 1, 1937, Earhart and her navigator, Fred Noonan, departed from Miami, Florida in their Lockheed Model 10 Electra aircraft. Their route would take them across the Americas, Africa, the Indian subcontinent, Southeast Asia, and the Pacific Ocean, covering approximately 29,000 miles. The journey began smoothly, with Earhart and Noonan making stops in various cities along the way where they were greeted by enthusiastic crowds and media attention. However, as they ventured further into the Pacific, they encountered increasingly challenging weather conditions and navigational obstacles. On July 2, 1937, Earhart and Noonan departed from New Guinea for Howland Island, a tiny speck of an island in the, in the central Pacific Ocean, approximately 2,500 miles away. Howland Island served as the next planned refueling stop before continuing on to Hawaii and completing the final leg of their journey. As they approached Howland Island, Earhart and Noonan encountered overcast skies, strong winds, and intermittent rain showers, which hampered their visibility and made navigation difficult. Despite these challenges, they remained in communication with the U.S. Coast Guard, which was stationed near Howland Island. Uh, so they were communicating with a, a, a Coast Guard ship, which was stationed near Howland Island, to provide radio assistance and guide them to their destination. However, as the hours passed, Earhart and Noonan failed to establish visual or radio contact with Howland Island or the Itasca, I think it's called. That's So that's the, the ship for the Coast Guard. Concerns grew among their support team and authorities as communication with the aircraft became increasingly sporadic. As soon as it became apparent that Earhart and Noonan had gone missing, the U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Itasca, stationed near Howland Island, initiated search and rescue operations. They, attempt- they attempted to establish radio contact with the aircraft and guide them to their destination. Upon realizing the seriousness of the situation, the U.S. Navy and Coast Guard mobilized a massive search effort, coordinating ships, aircraft, and submarines to scour the area where Earhart's last transmissions were received. This included deploying surface vessels equipped with advanced radio direction finding equipment to triangulate the aircraft's position. Aircraft from the U.S. Navy and Coast Guard, as well as civilian organizations, conducted extensive aerial searches over the vast expanse of the Central Pacific Ocean. Search planes flew grid patterns, meticulously scanning the ocean surface for any signs of wreckage, debris, or survivors. Meanwhile, ships combed the waters below, using sonar and visual observations to search for any traces of Earhart's Lockheed Electra or life rafts. The search area covered over 250,000 square miles, making it one of the most extensive search efforts in history at the time. Submarines were also deployed to assist in the search effort, using their underwater sonar capabilities to scan the ocean floor for any signs of wreckage or anomalies. However, the rugged terrain and depth of the ocean presented significant challenges to these efforts. 
The disappearance of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan garnered international attention, prompting offers of assistance from the other countries and organizations. Ships and aircraft from Australia, New Zealand, and other neighboring countries joined the search effort, expanding the scope of the operation. Despite the extensive search effort, no trace of Earhart, Noonan, or their Lockheed Electra was ever found. Pretty big turn. Pretty big turn of events. Yeah. Um, not great. Definitely better moments for, mm-hmm. for Earhart. I bet it was that Fred Noonan that messed it up. You think so? Mm-hmm. You think it was a sabotage mission? Perhaps. Perhaps. Well, we can we can add that to the list of theories. I don't think that's one that I've got mm-hmm. on my list. But with that said, shall we? Ladies and gentlemen, the theories. So, the first theory, crashing and sinking. This theory suggests that Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan's Lockheed Electra ran out of fuel and crashed into the Pacific Ocean. According to this scenario, Earhart's navigational challenges, combined with adverse weather conditions and limited fuel reserves, led to their inability to locate Howland Island, their intended refueling stop. Without sufficient fuel to reach an alternative landing site, they would have been forced to make a crash landing in the ocean. Proponents of this theory point to the lack of definitive evidence of Earhart's whereabouts after her last radio transmission, which occurred near Howland Island. Despite extensive search efforts, no trace of Earhart, Noonan, or their aircraft has ever been found. Additionally, the vastness and depth of the Pacific Ocean make locating the wreckage a daunting challenge, further complicating efforts to confirm this theory conclusively. Any thoughts on the first theory? It seems too convenient. Too convenient? Yeah. I mean, it's exactly what you'd expect. Like, too easy? Yeah. It's too easy for Mm -hmm. this to have happened? Plane goes missing. Oh, they crashed? Into the ocean? Yeah. Of all things? For... Yeah. It's definitely not like the ocean's big or anything. It's too convenient. It's too convenient. Theory 2. The Gardner Island Theory. The Gardner Island Theory suggests that Earhart and Noonan may have crash-landed on Gardner Island, now known as Nukumaroro, a small island uh, located 350 miles southeast of Howland Island. Proponents of this theory point to several pieces of evidence, including radio distress calls received in the days following Earhart's disappearance, which were believed to have originated from the vicinity of Gardner Island. Subsequent expeditions to the area have uncovered artifacts, such as a woman's shoe, and aluminum fragments, which some researchers believe could have belonged to Earhart and Noonan. Additionally, analysis of historical photographs of the island has revealed objects that appear consistent with wreckage from a Lockheed Electra aircraft. While these findings provide tantalizing clues, skeptics argue that the evidence is inconclusive and could have alternate explanations. Further research and analysis are needed to definitively establish whether Earhart and Noonan landed on Gardner Island. Is this one a little less convenient for you? It's a little less convenient. Um, 
Should we should we mention the the thing? The thing that you wanted to talk about when I told you what we were talking about today? Oh. About oh, yes. about the bodies. Our f- the crustacean pals? Yeah. Um perhaps we could. So in addition, I'm not going to turn the music back on for this cuz normally I like to have the music on when I'm saying factual information. Mm-hmm. Um there's part of part of the the Gardner Island theory is that Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan were eaten by crabs. Yep, coconut crabs. Could I think you may know a little bit more about this than I do. So is there like is there any more to this other than um well, you know, a crab is 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 a vicious animal and uh, I'm not saying that the crabs killed Amelia and Noonan. I mean, I think that's unrealistic personally yeah Yeah. like i I find it hard to believe that she could probably fight off some crabs prop and i mean between the two of them i i feel like Mm -hmm. i mean i don't know literally anything about coconut crabs but i'm assuming that they're not Mm -hmm. large yeah perhaps about the size of a coconut i don't know Um, i'm gonna i'm gonna look it up right now yeah because i'm i'm curious yeah but the, the the real theory is that the reason we can't find her body or Noonan's body is because, um, well, one, long time ago, two, the coconut crabs um, ate them post-mortem. So, I, I mean, I, I suppose that that's accurate. Um, so, I, I'm looking at at pictures of of coconut crabs mm-hmm. currently and they they seem about the size of a coconut they can climb trees apparently like Ooh. I, like they look, might look a, at this that crab is in a tree That's a, so and oh okay so i i figured out why they're called coconut crabs because they climb coconut no it, it's so it's not actually anything to do with climbing a tree okay. but it's that they wear coconuts as shells because they're hermit crabs. We're clearly not dealing with normal crabs here. They're they seem to be su- in, superhuman. In your research, could they crabs? Could they have possibly pieced together some sort of weapon? Well, I mean, to be fair, there are videos on the internet of like mm-hmm. crab crabs holding knife. things. Crab with a knife. Crab with a knife. So it's possible yeah. that maybe the crabs were able to break off mm. the aluminum. From the plane, oh. and maybe that's how they found the aluminum, uh-huh. and may- maybe they disposed yeah. disposed of two two lives, and then mm-hmm. subsequently, you know, didn't have to to search for food for a few days. Yeah. Do you think it was a uh, revenge against humans for eating crabs? I think that might be a little uh, a little bold for a simple creature. Well, Such as a coconut crab. Yeah. They're also called robber crabs. Hmm. So, do you think they they commit burglary? Mm-hmm. They they burglarized the souls of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan from their bodies, or perhaps their bodies from their souls. I think the first one was probably okay. Theory three captured by Japanese. 
This theory states that Earhart and Noonan were captured by the Japanese military after crash landing in the Marshall Islands or elsewhere in the Pacific. According to proponents of this theory, the Japanese authorities detained Earhart and Noonan on suspicion of espionage and later executed them or held them prisoner until their deaths. Some accounts and documents purportedly support this theory, including alleged, alleged eyewitness testimonies and radio intercepts suggesting that Earhart and Noonan were spotted and taken into custody by Japanese forces. However, skeptics argue that the evidence is unreliable and lacks corroborating proof, making it difficult to substantiate this theory definitively. So, interesting, mm -hmm. interesting proposition here. Yeah, it. Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan mm -hmm. were spies. Yeah. I, hmm. I mean, I get it. Like, I could see it, to be honest. I mean, perhaps. I mean, certainly, there was there were some tensions building in I the mean, mm -hmm. early twentieth mm -hmm. century. Um. And I mean, this was this would have been the time period when when spies mm -hmm. were like. Mm -hmm. a big thing it's true and unless you've seen the movie argyle which I, which I watched recently mm -hmm. it was it was pretty good i would recommend like i'm not i'm not not getting sponsored by apple films mm -hmm. here but i mean go, go watch argyle like every anybody like it's a good film it's an apple film it, it is an apple film mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i think you i think it's universal and apple mm. but but anyway it's about spies it's about espionage mm. starring henry cavill uh, I am legally obligated to say yes. Mm, Although I wouldn't say he's the main character. Uh, mm, mm. It's a very interesting film. I, mm. I will be honest. I was expecting to have already predicted every plot yeah. twist. Mm -hmm. And I didn't. Mm. It's like a... I was actually surprised. Oh, wow. Which is is kind of difficult for films because normally I'm pretty good at guessing. Yeah. You seen the... You seen the uh... The Sixth Sense. Mm -hmm. Did you guess with, that one with Haley Joel Osment? Yeah. No. I didn't either. I that... didn't guess that one. Yeah, that was a good one. So any anything else like back on on track of, um, Earhart being a spy? I just don't. I don't personally. I don't think the Japanese would do that. You know. I mean, it's that they were. They weren't the coolest back then. Uh, neither were we, of course. Um. But it it seems like it would make zero sense to kill Earhart, like you know. But but if they were spies, I mean, using, they wouldn't want their information uh, getting uh, stolen. Put them in some prison somewhere, and well, that's but and, that could be part of it. For a Japanese okay, spy. Well, fair enough. They didn't, they didn't trade, but yeah. But it does it, say that they could have just held them. But I I agree. Like, I feel like that's a pretty valuable mm -hmm. bargaining chip, like knowing how important she was to society mm -hmm. be like hey we we got her like yeah give us hawaii or i don't know you think we'd make that trade do you think we would make that trade amelia Earhart for hawaii mm -hmm. mm. uh, we could give them a wahoo keep the rest Okay, fair enough. The last main theory is 
kind of interesting because it's just various conspiracy theories is the last last like topic uh and it states various conspiracy theories have emerged over the years suggesting that Earhart's disappearance was the result of an operation or cover-up involving government agencies or other organizations these theories range from claims that Earhart was on a secret spy mission for the u.s government to allegations of a cover-up involving her disappearance Proponents of conspiracy theories often point to perceived inconsistencies in official accounts of Earhart's disappearance and raise questions about the motives and actions of individuals and organizations involved in the search and investigation. However, skeptics argue that conspiracy theories lack credible evidence and are based on speculation and conjecture. Any, any, any thoughts there? Mm. A U.S. cover-up? Is that... Is that the narrative? I I think so. I think that's the that's the main the main point here. Well, what would well, you know? Man, when when have have the U.S. government ever covered up anything? I definitely can't think of like I cannot recall. three things off the top of my head, and one of them was this century. I definitely can't. I can't recall anything actually. Uh. Legally, I'm obligated to say. I'm le yeah. Legally, we're we're obligated to say that the U.S. government has never mm. covered up anything. Um, but they definitely don't cover up when they lose seven trillion dollars randomly in one of the later months of the year on a particular day and. And planes, plane. See, okay, planes are bad. Planes mean cover up, is what we've learned today. Mm. 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 It's a lot for me to process. Mm. Mm. Um. Do you want to present any theories about that we haven't already covered, or maybe just what do you, pick your favorite? Of the ones that we've talked about. Mm. Well, I think uh, there's some talk about a Bermuda Triangle. Uh, it does exist, some, from what I've been told. Was that where she went down? Did she go Jamie, down? pull up the Bermuda Triangle. Uh, joke's on you guys. I'm also Jamie right now. Um, th- No, she did not go down in the Bermuda Triangle because that is near Bermuda. Which is not... Which is not... It's a different part of the planet? Correct. It is in an entirely different ocean. Yeah. That makes sense. And it involves Puerto Rico. Because it... It... Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It makes a triangle. Multiple points of the triangle. Right. And Puerto Rico is one of them. Mm -hmm. And Bermuda is another. Mm -hmm. And I am pretty sure the keys in Florida are the last point. Well, do you think, uh, you know... Uh, assuming that the Bermuda Triangle has some some force to it, there's other triangles around the world. I feel like we would know mm. if there was another triangle. Well, speaking of triangles, the Illuminati. Do you think they factor in here? Uh, do I think a floating eye in a triangle mm. brought down Amelia Earhart's yes. plane? Ye- that I'm asking that question. Yes. Like, are we talking like Bill Cipher here? I'm. Do you know what? What do you know about Bill Cipher? 
uh, probably that his first name is Bill, for one. Did you ever watch Gravity Falls? Or do you know? Oh, this is oh. the character Bill Cipher. Oh, okay. Uh, for the for the listeners at home, he's so it's describing a a Dorito shaped man with an eyeball and a top hat and a bow tie. Uh, with arms and legs. With well, arms he's and not legs. a he's not a Dorito shape. He's a pyramid. Which okay, fine. Technically, that's okay. a Dorito shape, but mm-hmm. it's sort also like a, a triangle. Chicken and the egg scenario. What came first? What do you mean? Pyramids or Doritos? Probably the pyramids. What if uh, Amelia Earhart was in the Illuminati, and and they wanted to silence her? Yeah, and maybe she had too much power in the meetings, um, and some other member. So of somebody the, got jealous. Yeah, maybe like you're Beyonce saying. or Jay Z. I don't think either of them were alive back then. We'll have to fact check that. Um, I don't think we need to fact check that. I think it's pretty safe to say that they well, they weren't alive. The thing with these Illuminati folks is that they might have, you know, discovered the Fountain of Youth. And Jay-Z was born in 1969. Well, that's the narrative. That's what they want you to think? Yeah. Yeah, that's what they want me to think. Well, that's what they want everybody to think. It's true. You know, my dad, he's in the Coast Guard, search and rescue. He so do you, would you say that your dad was involved in the Amelia Earhart expedition, like in the searching process? Um, probably not. I think he would have been negative 40 in something So like in that. the 1930s is when we're... Yeah. What is this, like 30... I think it's 37... 1937 is when this happened. Yeah, something like that. Um, mm-hmm. So he probably wasn't. Yeah, I, safe to say, mm-hmm. yeah. And according to him, the Bermuda Triangle, just normal ocean. Oh, really? Yeah, he, apparently he's gone through it. Normal ocean. I don't believe it. I think that's what, it, it's, I think that's what the Illuminati would want you to think about the Bermuda like Triangle. It my dad is in on it. Can we propose the Todd Block theory? The Todd Block theory, that your dad is single-handedly responsible for the Coast Guard not finding Amelia Earhart. Well, yeah. I don't, I, no. Okay. I'm, I'm going to go with no. Ruling that one out? I'm going to rule out the Todd Block theory. Despite the prevalence of conspiracy theories, mainstream historians and researchers generally consider them to be unsubstantiated and lacking in empirical evidence. The true fate of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan remains unsolved. Any any final thoughts as we wrap up episode two um, discussing Amelia Earhart? I think uh, Amelia Earhart was an inspiration to um, everyone out there who are, you know, facing strife and struggling to achieve their dreams. And at the end of the day, um, she she flew flew high and she she did it. You know who else flew high? Kobe Bryant at one point. It's a lot for me to process. Anyway, 
thank you all for tuning in to episode two of Cryptid Horizons. Foster, what do you think? Do you think you'll be joining us for next week? Uh, I'll see what my schedule um, is looking like. Perhaps I'll be on a hot date. Um, yeah, we'll see. So what if I what if I give you a hint of next week's episode with that? Ooh, I would love a hint. Uh, okay, so do you want a person, place, or thing hint mm-hmm. for next week? Give me a uh, give me a noun. A noun? I can give you a noun. West Virginia. Mountain Mama? No. Okay. Uh, West Virginia. I'm drawing blank here. Well, I guess you'll just have to join us next week for episode three of Cryptid Horizons.